Civic Conversations is about sharing the good, discovering the civic impact that people are having on the world. Our guest today is Dr. Louis Blasco. Dr. Blasco has spent his life healing those around him. He grew up under Francisco Franco's regime in Spain before traveling to Belgium and then the Belgian Congo to specialize in tropical disease. From there, he traveled to the States and spent most of his professional career as a reproductive endocrinologist, first at the University of Pennsylvania and then at Drexel University Medical School in Philadelphia. Today, he uses his fluency in four languages and extensive medical knowledge to help fight the spread of COVID-19. And forgive me for mentioning that he is also a fiercely competitive tennis player. <laughs> Today's conversation is hosted by myself, Grant Parisi, and by Scott DeSantis. Louis, thanks so much for being on the show today. You're welcome. I would like to start with your time in the Congo. Um, so you grew up under, under Franco, studied infectious disease, and then you shared how very prepared or rather unprepared you were after medical school. What was that like, diving in immediately into such a big responsibility? Uh, that was expression of my naivety, I guess, that um, I took all these kind of what it looks now adventures. And as you mentioned, I was as old as 24 years old when I found myself in Congo. And I think I mentioned before, I had a degree from... Uh, Prince Leopold III in Belgium in tropical diseases, and an MD degree from Valencia University and also Paris. In any event, after my training as a, as a infectious diseases and tropical diseases, I was expecting to come to South America and just kind of uh, be kind of a little bit of an adventure in South America, but and ended up in Congo. And the reason was multiple, but one of them is because actually the Belgian Congo was very well organized, believe it or not, actually a quite rich country, uh, which uh, provided very good level of medical care and, and also the social kind of activities, for example, they had social workers that were taking care of patients, of, of uh, their workers, which was unknown in any of the colonial places in Africa. But in Congo, what they happened is that it was not a colony. It was actually the private property of Leopold III of Belgium. And not having a colonial kind of uh, department, and the country is very small, Belgium is very small, they didn't have a colonial department, so they apply all the laws that they had in Belgium to Congo. And that meant they had to have fairly good hospitals, very good uh, roads and social workers and all kinds of social things that all the other colonies didn't have. I mean, the French colonies or the English colonies. But anyway, so I ended up in a fairly good hospital with, uh, to give you an example, the operating rooms were all air-conditioned, which couldn't be, say, the same in France or even in Spain. 
And so basically that enticed me to go to Congo. And I spent three years of my life over there. And arriving with very little knowledge of almost anything, I thought I had a lot of knowledge, but in fact, I did not. And with the expectation that I would be trained for many, many months before I would be myself doing the surgeries. But that ended up being only a couple of months. And then after that, I, I was on my own. And I discovered some things were very good. Some things were not so good. And I had very interesting experiences. Some of them I will never forget. And maybe later on we can talk about them. But anyway, that's my life as I arrived there at 24 years of age. Tell us, uh, tell us more about y- your experience there. You mentioned that one of the other doctors had died, and so you were, were responsible for a lot pretty quick? Pretty quick. I was supposed to have six months training before I was sent to in charge of the hospital. The hospital had about three or 400 beds, so we're not small hospitals. And I was supposed, as I said, to be trained and then sent to a hospital after training with another supervision of another doctor. But lo and behold, uh, one of the doctors actually had an accident, had to be evacuated, and they asked me whether I could take over, please, please. And naively as I was, I said, of course I can take over. So the next day I was there after a total of maybe one month training. And as soon as I arrived there, I went directly to the emergency room. And then I had to uh, just spend there the rest of my day so that I didn't have dinner or lunch or anything and discovered that that was going to be a little bit rough for a little while. And so I attended to things that I had never seen in my life, like cats with machetes and knives and poison and malaria and all kinds of things. So um, it was an extraordinary experience which I think in retrospect should have scared me and made me take the next airplane back to Europe, but I didn't. So I toughened it up and, and I continued to work. And I guess eventually I learned a few things. So I was able to, um, to do a, the best job that somebody at 24 years of age can have <laughs> at, this, at this point. So accidents and poison, uh, snake bites, malaria, all this was something that I saw in my first 24 hours and then continued for the next three years, as I said. Yeah, it's unbelievable what you accomplished at, at such, such a young age. I think in our other conversations here, we've learned about the incredible things that our, our guests have accomplished early on in their careers and the, the energy that that takes. And the word I think I've heard you use before, Dr. Blasco, is invincible um, for when you were younger. Do you find that there's a difference in how people can help the world and have an impact when they have that invincibility, that energy when they're young versus maybe the knowledge that you've accumulated um, today? That is a good question. I, I believe the youth and uh, I guess a little bit of naivety helps to the young generation to do wonderful things. It can be dangerous, but I think it's also what moves forward. And so, yes, I have a, a great 
admiration for and respect for youth and energy. But I think that if I learned something after so many years is uh, the, the, the most important thing is to be, to be willing and eager to learn every day of your life. And at my age, which I will not discover now here, I will still say that uh, I am always every day happy when, when I end at, at the end of the day thinking I learned something today. And I am quite unhappy when I think I spend a whole day without learning anything. And frankly, it's very rare that I don't learn something because anytime I have a minute, I read or I search. So the ambition to learn is, I think, the most important thing on any human being. And that's what uh, I admire more than anything else, and I respect it more than anything else. I don't know if this answers your question, but uh, this is basically uh, an important belief that I had to share with you. During your, uh, during your time in the, in the Congo, I imagine at the end of the day, you, you had a new learning experience uh, you know, every day. I mean, tell us about some of the things that you learned while you were there. Well, one of the things that I learned is that uh, that uh, a lot of the people uh, there were uh, very um, um, strong and powerful um, people that uh, had their own beliefs, and that you had to be. Uh, you had to be respectful of uh, other people's um, ways of life and, and not to dismiss it. You can imagine arriving at, uh, at those times, I'm talking about 1963, 1966. And uh, from a European point of view, you arrive in a country with different beliefs. And for example, uh, you had to learn soon that it's very important that, um, that, that um, you gain the confidence of the elder in the village. Uh, there was no such a thing as a mayor or, uh, you know, someone in charge, but it was always an elder or elderly um, group of uh, persons that will be really making uh, all the decisions in the village. You don't really knew that. You thought that you know the authorities will be uh, the ones in charge, but in reality, I discovered pretty soon that uh, you had to uh, you had to gain the confidence of the elder people, and uh, and that was part of the culture. So I myself learned that rather promptly, and tried to uh, attend to uh, some of the needs of these elder people that might have. Uh, maybe medical problems, for example, chronic ulcers or chronic diseases or something. So my challenge was to try to cure these people because by doing that, then I will have the, uh, the rest of the village and the rest of the people accepting my, my advice and, and the medical care that I could provide. So that was the first thing to understand and to respect other people's and other cultures kind of uh, wells, ways of life and, and rules and regulations, uh, which were very different from what I brought from Europe. So that's one thing. 
Uh, in terms of uh, vignettes and things that I discovered, for example, um, I guess it was within one week or so of my arrival there, uh, some little child was playing in the river, which all these villages often are next to rivers, big rivers, in this case, it's the Congo River, actually. Uh, and the child was attacked by a crocodile, just a kind of a big animal. Uh, and, uh, and it was brought to me without, uh, with, with a big bite on a leg. And I frankly never seen or never knew what to do in a case like this. So obviously, I had to ask uh, <clears throat> the nurses that have been working there what, what to do. And they were the ones that they taught me after their own experience of many, many years. So we had to amputate a, a, a leg on a little child. And, and that was a little bit traumatic, to say the least. But we had to do it. And, and, and this child survived. So uh, that's one, one little adventure. Another adventure was, for example, uh, every Friday when 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 the day was over, the journal of work was over, workers will sometimes drink and fight, and uh, it was going to be a busy day in the emergency room with a lot of uh, you know uh, fights and cats and things that needed to be taken care. And I remember one case where uh, they brought to me a man with a cat in the arm. And uh, it was actually stopped uh, by, they had applied some kind of local kind of uh, medication, which was in my point, uh, from what I could see was like earth, uh, a bunch of uh, herbs and things on top of the arm. So I very diligently, uh, took this thing off and then it started to bleed tremendously. <laughs> and I put a tourniquet. Bottom line is then I had to take it to the operating room. And again, I had never seen uh, a situation like this. So I had a book that I had to consult as I was doing the surgery and uh, tie an artery so that he wouldn't bleed to death. And I did tie the artery and eventually um, I was looking at the book and doing my surgery, looking at the book and doing the surgery. And then I discovered I was cutting in the wrong side of the arm to find this artery. Eventually I corrected that, tied the artery, saved the arm, but um, had some, some little neuro, neurological uh, problems with the two left fingers. Uh, but the man was very happy. And lo and behold, this man went back to his village and I used to have a little Volkswagen, you know, uh, car that I would go around the villages. And every time I would drive by, this guy would come running, running, running from his uh, hut in the village and throw a, 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 a chicken, a live chicken for me to take home. Uh, the first time that he came running, I said, well, maybe very angry that he has this <laughs> problem with the two little fingers. But in fact, what he was doing is just actually throwing this chicken to thank you me. And he used to do that. So by the third time when I drove through his village, I already put the window down and, and just a smile to him when he threw the, the chicken over there. So that's a little story, which is a good one. There are others that are bad, so maybe <laughs> we can talk about them. 
<laughs> we'll, we'll stick with the good ones. <laughs> um, well, now I know to go driving around with my with, with my windows down. Um, <laughs> um, the first time the window was up, <laughs> but, but then I learned what he wanted anyway. So, gosh, so as a recent medical graduate in your 20s in a new country, a new culture, all these things to soak in that you've been talking about. And you mentioned when, when we were speaking offline that you were also one of five white people in the community. How did that affect your experience or affect your ability to help the community there and in, inform everything that came out of it? Grant, this is a question, and you had to choose... Um you have to just understand that we're talking about the 60s and the question of races, uh, race and things like this was, was basically not even brought into the picture. It was sort of uh, understood or accepted. We were the six white people and then um, the other were the rest of the population. And uh, at least in my case, and I think everybody working there, they thought, we thought, that we were doing good work by just helping these people, and uh, and 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 implicit on that probably it was a, a totally lack of sense of uh, racist uh, uh, considerations. But when you look back and you really analyze with the perspective of today, I think we were racist in the sense that we just thought, well, we are we are us, and these are them. And we are here to help them. So basically, uh, it never occurred to you that you were racist, but in some ways, it was a very racist society because that's the way the things were. The people in command were the white people and, and, and the others were the workers. And, uh, and when you think of that with, from the perspective of today, it is unbelievable, but this was the truth. This is what was happening all over. And so... I don't know if your question had the, the connotation of uh, how were you affected. Uh, you were affected only with a sense of superior, superiority that, that, in fact, was implicit on, on the setup where the people in charge were always white. And, and we basically didn't mingle at all. So the six white people will just basically get together and do things together and, and that, that was it. That was it. And uh, something that uh, today will be totally unacceptable was what we actually did. And so in retrospect now you realize what a wrong situation and a wrong setup and obviously I don't think it does exist anymore. Although I think it I don't know. I have not been in Africa recently. And then my last one was as a tourist and going to a safari, <laughs> so which is quite a different thing than when I was there. Although when I was there, I was also hunting monkeys, which is probably something that probably I wouldn't do now, but that's what I did at the time. It was a, a source of entertainment. Well, it's encouraging, at least to me, Louis, that we are at a different place now and there's certainly a lot of a lot of work to be done but i think that we'd, we'd like to ask you a bit about how your 
experience in, in, in the Congo then informed your more recent work and your career in the, in the, in the States? So, Grant, of course, uh, one has to evolve, and I hope that I had evolved with the times, changing uh, a lot of these uh, beliefs and behaviors and things like this. And as you say, there is a still a lot to be done on that sense. I, I'm not naive enough to know that we had overcome all these disparities. Uh, we're far from that. But anyway, I think that when I came to this country, obviously, I started to do my kind of uh, training on reproduction, change a little bit course. But the, the way I came to this country was because the Vietnam War was going on and uh, there were a lot of uh, soldiers, American soldiers, that would come back to the VA, the Veteran Administration Hospital, um, with uh, chronic malaria, malaria that was resistant to the medications. And so at the University of Pennsylvania, they were doing, uh, the Department of Pharmacology was uh, in charge of looking for new medications, new approaches to the treatment of these soldiers, which were actually have uh, malaria that they couldn't you know, be treated with the normal medications. And uh, not having too many people with the expertise that I had, I was offered to come here and work and doing research on that area. So that brought me back to, to be in contact with many of these soldiers that were affected at the VA. And uh, I had no experience in doing research, but fortunately, the chairman of the Department of Pharmacology trained me a little bit on, on doing research. And I spent my first year actually doing um, treatments or research on treatment for these soldiers. And going to talk to these soldiers in the VA was also an interesting adventure because uh, you need to know that I spoke no English whatsoever. I spoke French, but no English. So basically, my communication problems were dramatic. The, the soldiers were not exactly Harvard graduates, so basically <laughs> it was almost impossible to communicate, but eventually I was able to, uh, to get some of their blood and do, and do some studies and, 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 and publish something that would hopefully was useful and some medications evolved that were much more effective on treating these patients. So that's the beginning of my career here. Prior to actually doing any kind of reproduction, I did uh, this, this work on pharmacology at the University of Pennsylvania. Tell us, um, tell us more about then the evolution of your career and bring us to more the, the present day in your fight against COVID. Well, um, COVID, I really don't know too much. I, I have some background that I can interpret some of the things that I read, like you read. And uh, basically, I, I only had participated on doing vaccinations in the city of Philadelphia. That's uh, my participation on COVID. In terms of evolution of why I became a reproductive endocrinologist, First of all, when I was in Africa, one of the most rewarding things were to do what I thought was obstetrics and gynecology because we got positive results, little babies and mothers, they were thankful. 
uh, in contradistinction with diseases where the end result was usually not so good. And maternity of obstetrics and gynecology is very rewarding. So that, that imposed on me the desire to become a gynecologist. And so that's how I was directed or I, I started my training on, on obstetrics and gynecology, actually at Drexel University, which at the time was called Hahnemann University. So that's where I started. As you may or may not know, this is four years of a residency program. And then after that, evolved that I was more interested in helping people that had infertility. So I started to do reproduction, which is another three years of uh, training on a fellowship on that. So after seven years, I became <laughs> a reproductive endocrinologist. So the evolution was progressive and long, but eventually I, I, I became what I wanted to be, which is a reproductive endocrinologist. And then I, I, I just did the rest of my career as such. Uh, I work at Penn starting like in the army as a soldier and then keep going up until I became a full professor and endowed chair and all these all the nice, good, important things, which made me very happy. But uh, that's one step at a time. And that's another of the lessons that you learn. You don't have to be smart. You just have to be persistent and you have to just put one foot and then the other and keep going. And that's basically uh, another of the little messages of this old man. Well, I would imagine that after after seven years of residency, you perhaps didn't have to perform surgeries with the textbook open in your in your next hand. <laughs> um. oh, that's a, I, I learned to do it without looking at the book. But Amazing. <laughs> you learn something every day. Yeah. Um, what, was, what was most inspiring to you in your training and what continues to inspire you today? I think I, make, I made already allusion in our conversation before. My biggest message, strength, or whatever you want to call it, is to recognize that uh, the every day is a good day to learn something and that there is no end to that. It is interesting because, you see, when you are young, you think, okay, once I finish my high school, I'll be on top of everything. Pretty soon you discover you are nowhere. So you start again on the bottom, right? You go to college and you are, and then when you finish college, you say, oh my goodness, I am on top now. Well, I got news for you. It's a whole rest of a life to, to learn. And you have to, uh, to accept that and to enjoy that. And as I said before, yeah, several times, there is no day that I don't want to go to bed without thinking that I didn't learn something. So I think that this, this is a very kind of a basic and maybe boring type of uh, advice, but basically uh, this, is, this is what I will say. Of all the things that you can have, the most important thing is basically to recognize that every day is a good day to learn. Bring us to current day. Where... Where in your life right now are you a freshman or a or a newbie uh, or a first year resident with a textbook open? What what's inspiring you to get smarter uh, today? Yes, yes. I think that, that um, the other thing that you will learn sometimes when you get old is that as you get old, 
you learn with more difficulty and your memory goes down a little bit. Uh, so basically, uh, uh, no, even, even when you are old, I'm not now on the top uh, finishing, you know, high school or college or medical school or whatever. Uh, just now I'm basically going back to uh, grammar school and <laughs> starting to learn. And, uh, and uh, so uh, this, is, this is what is happening as you get old. Uh, your, your ambition to learn is still there. Uh, your your uh, ability to learn is quite, quite decreased, but uh, never mind. Everybody has to get there, so you have to keep going. I'm talking to two very young, ambitious, and effective people, so uh, that's my message. You are, on, you are on top, but you will be, you will continue to be on top, but just keeping every day, keeping forward and, and, and keep going up. Never, never be satisfied. Well, um, that that brings to mind maybe a final question that that I have for you, Louis, which is in speaking with many of my contemporaries or the younger generations today who are deciding what to do with their careers, what to do with their lives, they're choices that they can take that are like yours, choosing a profession that is on its surface, very giving and very helpful to the world. There are also many professions that are not on their, on their surface as, uh, as giving, but part of our experience in this podcast in interacting with other people, other individuals, other families in our lives is that there's so much good that is being done in the world today from, from people from all walks of life. And I wonder if you have perspective on that just from, from the journey that, that you've been on and where you see good that's being done in a more unconventional manner and that that we can continue to highlight as we as we share these these stories with our listeners uh grant this is also a very good question and uh, and opens the issue of what is the most important thing the most important thing is to be passionate about what you do to be intense to be happy with it I cannot think of anything worse than just have to go to work every day to something that you hate to do. And I have pity for people that have to do that. And I realize many people have to do that. It is easy to say that uh, as a doctor, uh, you probably have a profession that is easier to be happy going to work. But that's not always the case. There are many people that don't even want to do that. So it's not a matter of profession. One thing that I made always clear is that you have to be proud on what you do. And for example, to a vignette or little story is, I will see a, some person in the hospital uh, who is, uh, you know, carrying a stretcher with a patient. And this person obviously is never being told thank you for what he's doing. 
And when I seen someone doing that and doing it nicely and well, uh, and, and that's to say kind to the person, careful what he's doing, I will make a point to say, you are a professional and, uh, and you have to be proud of what you're doing. You're, you show that you are proud of what you're doing. So it doesn't have to be a very sophisticated thing, but you have to be proud on what you're doing and do uh, the maximum uh, quality of what you do. If you don't put passion in your work, then you're going to have many years of unhappiness, no matter what you do, whether you are a doctor or a scientist or whatever. So what classify people is their passion for what they are doing and their satisfaction to do things to the best of their knowledge and to the maximum quality of what they can deliver, no matter what it is, no matter what kind of work. This is the, this, this is the secret of having happiness. And in another matter, uh, people that I admire are, as I said, people that uh, have given back to society. Giving back to society when you are on top is one of the things that I admire. Uh, and, and, and actually, I, I need to make a comment regarding that. I think this is called philanthropy. And uh, that is a very American thing, philanthropy. Um, maybe because the country is rich, maybe because the country allows people to get very, very rich, and not so much in other countries where there is probably more social justice, but there are not so many super rich people. So all these super rich people, if they give back, I admire them too, highly. The important thing is the passion of what you're doing, and if you are successful, give back, give back to society, give back to the country that has helped you. And that's what I did try to do myself, especially in the last years. I was working and loving uh, teaching. Teaching is my passion. I will define myself not as a doctor, but as a teacher and try to give back a little bit of what I got. And, and that makes me happy. It's an excellent message to end on. And you're st still teaching us and our listeners today. Be passionate, love what you do. That's Dr. Louis Blasco. You can Thank listen you. to more civic conversations online or on your favorite podcast app. Dr. Blasco, thank you so much for being on our show today. And keep, keep an eye out for, for a live chicken in, in thanks. <laughs> thank you, Grant. Don't throw the chicken from Massachusetts, Boston to here. It's a big distance. <laughs> Wait to see me driving by there. Okay. We'll use this tennis racket instead. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, Scott. Thank you. You can listen in to more civic conversations online on your favorite podcast app.